Hello and welcome back to KHN's What the Health. I'm Julie Rovner, Chief Washington Correspondent for Kaiser Health News. I'm joined by some of the best and smartest health reporters in Washington. We're taping on Monday, December 21st at 10 a.m. As always, news happens fast and things might have changed by the time you hear this. So here we go. Today we are joined via video conference by Joanne Cannon of Politico. Good morning, everybody. Anna Edney of Bloomberg News. Hi there. And Sarah Carlin-Smith of The Pink Sheet. Hi, Julie. Thanks for having me. So this is our last podcast of the year, and I thought we'd take a look back. And since this year has been so dominated by the fight against COVID-19, we first talked about the novel coronavirus on this podcast back in January, I thought we'd concentrate on some of the non-COVID health policy news, and there actually was quite a bit. Then at the end, we'll have some very special extra credits. So let's dig right in. Uh, It's been a pretty big year for the Affordable Care Act. Despite repeated efforts to kill it, the law turned 10 in March. The Supreme Court could still kill it with a case it heard in November, but most observers think the court won't. And the Trump administration is still doing its best to weaken the law, even on its way out. It gave Georgia permission to jettison healthcare.gov altogether and just let brokers and private insurance websites sell insurance to people who buy their own insurance. I actually have a COVID-related question here about the ACA. Did COVID make the ACA stronger or weaker? I think it made arguments for it stronger. I don't know if it made the actual ACA stronger. There's certainly, as you mentioned, the Trump administration has been going after it for a long time. But at this point, if you're going to go after health insurance while you're in the middle of a pandemic and people have lost their jobs and been needing to sign up for it, I think you give Democrats a lot to work with. So the numbers are really early. The open enrollment closed for most of the country on December 15th, but it seems to be about the same or maybe slightly up in terms of enrollment. And that's, of course, with the Trump administration not doing much of anything in terms of outreach. And obviously it wasn't in the news very much because everybody's been talking about COVID and the election. There are clearly a lot more people who are eligible for Affordable Care Act coverage than bought it. I mean, it's sort of this glass half full, glass half empty. On the one hand, it's not dead and people signed up, even with the threat of the Supreme Court hanging over it. On the other hand, there's way more people who could sign up. So so where is the ACA sort of now at the end of 2020? It seems to be in states' hands. You know, you have states that extended the timeline for signing up because of COVID. They, they reopened enrollment to let people who might have lost their jobs or had other circumstances that would make them eligible sign up. And then, you know, you have states that did not do that. And so, like you said, the numbers are early and I haven't looked at them in this way. But my guess would be that states that did that are contributing to kind of the continued use of it. And then, you know, in places where they didn't do that, it's less likely people are going to know that that's an option out there for them. We do expect the Biden administration to create some kind of special enrollment period. They do have that power under the law. President Trump had that power in the law and chose not to exercise it. But it would be a second enrollment period that would let people who were affected by the job loss and other pandemic-related catastrophes to get covered. We also know that the preliminary numbers, and we won't know the final breakdown of who's what and so forth for a few more weeks, but we do know that the preliminary numbers for ACA enrollment, the one that just finished on December 15th, that that was up. 
and I, I believe I remember reading it, it was about a million or a million point something. I don't remember offhand the exact number. But the but the whole numbers that we have are like eight or nine million. It's a pretty small number. I mean, California is still open, so we don't have a lot of states. Yeah. The other issue is that the Trump administration did not really do any messaging to speak of, whereas the Biden administration, if they do a special enrollment period called a SEP, we would expect messaging. And they also have the power to do that under current law. They don't have to go to Congress. They don't have to do anything. They have that power. And, and PSA, if, if you lose your job and your health insurance, you get your own special enrollment period. The special enrollment period we're talking about is for people who may have lost their job and didn't realize that they could have enrolled at the time or have decided they want to enroll now. I think I also saw something where a lot of younger people were signing up because now they're afraid that they might get COVID and maybe they should have health insurance. Right. And it's also cumbersome to do your own special enrollment period. It's a little bureaucratic. I've never had to do it, but I've been told that it is. So you could streamline it. In, a, in, a, in an open nationwide enrollment, special enrollment, it would be easier to do. All right. Well, let's move on. Um, it was also a busy year for Medicaid. Voters in two more red states, Oklahoma and Missouri, voted to expand Medicaid under the Affordable Care Act, leaving only a dozen states that have not opted in, although those dozen include the very large states of Florida, Texas, and Georgia. But the ongoing issue is whether states can require Medicaid recipients to prove that they're working or doing some other activity in order to keep their coverage. The Supreme Court has agreed to hear cases out of Arkansas and New Hampshire, but it's going to get confusing if the incoming Biden administration wants to make this go away, right? It's going to be hard to sort of say, okay, never mind. Supreme Court, just don't do this. The Justice Department under Biden cannot argue in favor of it. They can say we oppose this, and that does change the dynamic. On one hand, this is a very conservative Supreme Court. The conservative position politically since the Reagan era has been in favor of Medicaid work requirements. But the lower courts have voted, have ruled against it, including some conservative judges because the Medicaid law is about health care. The Medicaid law is not health care only if you're working or health care that you have to earn or health care that you deserve. It is if you qualify economically and what other, you know, other current state criteria for who gets it, you can get it. You know, you never know what the Supreme Court is going to do. It is a it is a really conservative court. It'll be up in the air. I mean, we'll, we'll see when we see probably next spring. I want to move on to Medicare, which had a fairly quiet year, aside from the debate that uh, Democratic presidential candidates had about Medicare for all, which sort of got settled early in the year when everybody lined up behind Joe Biden, one of the few candidates in the race who was not a Medicare for all supporter. But there was some actual Medicare news. Uh, For example, the Trump administration moved to limit out-of-pocket costs for insulin for Medicare beneficiaries to no more than $35 a month. How did that work out, drug people? (laughs) It actually worked out fairly well, given all Trump's probably lack of success in other drug pricing areas. About a third of Medicare Part D plans for the upcoming year will have this benefit where people will have a maximum copay or monthly copay of $35 for their insulin. The trade-off is your premiums are going to be higher. You should save money on your insulin. Most of the major companies that make insulin, Eli Lilly, Novo Nordisk, are participating as well in the program. So you should also be able to find the particular type of insulin I think you take if you're able to. Um, This is a demonstration project through the Affordable Care Act's demonstration program. So we'll see how this works in the long run. I think the administration had thought if this worked, maybe they'd figure out a way to expand it to other types of drug programs. To me, the interesting thing to to watch will be how people see that trade-off between higher premiums, but 
knowing that your drug costs are more stable. Which is the question writ large in all health insurance and in all insurance. I mean, your homeowner's insurance too. Do you want to pay a lower premium and have a higher deductible? It's the age old insurance trade off, right? And in terms of tackling drug prices, I think insulin is a case where most people sort of know whether they're on it or not. Um, the big problem for people when seniors trying to pick Medicare plans is you just normally don't always know what you're going to need and where those high cost drugs could hit you. So it's hard to plan for that. If you're on a chronic condition medication, perhaps you can make those choices, but you might not know the trade-offs you're making are later down the year for perhaps like a high cost cancer drug or some other disease you haven't been diagnosed with yet. Yes, I spent too many hours trying to figure out my mother's Medicare Part D coverage. I'm intimately familiar with what the difficulties of this. Do we think that the Biden administration is going to continue this or maybe they're going to want to go in another direction, which we can talk about more when we get to drug prices? I'm just curious about this one program. I don't think this is going to be a high target for them to kill or stop. It is a demonstration project, so they could kind of let it run its course and see what the data shows and then figure it out. I think there's probably other they're obviously with the pandemic and, and everything else, they're going to have a lot of other high ticket changes they're going to need to deal with first. I don't think this is going to be high on the chopping block and tackling insulin. I was thinking more of expanding, of using it for other drugs. I was going to say, or you could think about, you know, with insulin, this is Medicare beneficiaries. So, you know, there are many millions more people who take insulin that are not in the Medicare program. So that might be a way to look at expansion as well, not just other drugs, but helping not just seniors. I think when the Trump administration announced this program, it was kind of like insulin solved. <laughs> Yay. And there's a lot more that could still be done, a lot more people that could still be helped. Yeah, I'm sure. All right. Well, here's a Medicare story that didn't really happen this year, but this year touched it off. With so many people out of work and not paying payroll taxes, the Medicare Hospital Insurance Trust Fund is moving much more rapidly towards insolvency, perhaps even in the next year or two. In the past, this would have been a huge story. Sirens blaring, everybody running around, but obviously not so much this year. So my question is, is anybody going to notice this before it's too late to fix it with something small and end up having to do something dramatic? It'll be on the, you know, at some point in 2021, there'll be another must pass bill related to whatever, probably COVID or maybe some other must. There's always some must pass bills. Um, Maybe we'll have infrastructure week for real. We've had many crises. Congress usually comes up with a bipartisan fix. We've never actually gone broke. Um, I would. It doesn't go broke. It just becomes. I know, insolvent. but in, you get quote marks, right? <laughs> yes. um, the Congress likes to talk about it going broke. Therefore, they do end up having a solution. I don't know when that solution is, nor I know what it will look like. But I think at some point you will see a bipartisan fix not way in advance, not, oh, we've only got two years, so let's do it right this minute. They they never do anything fast. So, you know, maybe after April when we get, we usually get the trustees report in April, um, approximately April. Sometimes it's even June. It's sometime in the spring we get We'll get a number. It'll look really bad. People will focus. Maybe they'll focus long enough to fix it. We do not have a very long attention span. Yes, particularly not on Medicare when this keeps happening before. And I think they keep forgetting that it doesn't just go away. It happens and then they have to fix it to make it 
not happen. Let's talk about what was supposed to be the big health policy story of this year, drug prices. Despite bipartisan support, Congress didn't get anything substantive done on the drug price front. And President Trump talked a lot about drug prices and issued a lot of executive orders and even a couple of regulations. So I've got both my drug price experts here. You guys tell me what was the biggest drug price news of 2020. Anna, why don't you start? As many health reporters, my focus was was highly on COVID. And so when I think about what <laughs> broke through that I noticed on drug pricing, it certainly was the most favored nation's executive order and regulations. And I don't know that that means it's going to mean anything. Coming from the Trump administration, it's kind of a surprising proposal, the idea being to tie the price of certain drugs through um, the Medicare program to the lowest prices paid in other countries and you know, particularly in, in some European countries and where there's more price settings. So we don't do that here. And they're doing this on the way out. So, Sarah, you might know a little more than me, but I don't think we know what Biden's going to do with that yet. And if this is a program that will actually make it into uh, a regulatory phase or if it will kind of die on the vine um, and, and Biden has some other plans for it. But that was the biggest news that that stuck through um, to me. It, it's hard to imagine any administration having the regulatory authority to do that. I think pharma's already yeah. said they're going to sue. And, you know, even a conservative court, you would think, would say this would be something that would would probably have to go through Congress. So the most favored nations rule is interesting because they used an interim final rule process, which was only permitted because we're in this COVID health emergency. But it's unclear how they can really justify the link between, you know, high drug prices and wanting to tackle that and the current public health emergency. And so, as you mentioned, yes, pharma has already sued. A number of other groups have sued. And we actually should get a ruling in at least one of those cases by Christmas Eve. Because it's supposed to take effect January 1st, right? Right. And so because they did this interim final rule process, they're able to kind of speed everything up, avoid all these bureaucratic hoops. I think it's pretty doubtful legally this will stand up that they're able to do this. There's other also probably fairly valid legal arguments that could stop this proposal from taking place, including that it's this mandatory Medicare demo that would kind of include all of seniors in Medicare for the most part. And that's generally been seen as something that is not clear how legal that is under Obamacare. And in terms of the Biden administration, I think, yes, this is an idea in theory that has resonated with Democrats. But even when this rule came out, you saw Democrats were a little half-hearted to support this. I don't think the Biden team wants to kind of deal with a half-baked, not well-thought-through Trump administration policy that they're going to have to waste time and energy defending in court rather than working on their own plan that maybe they can protect. Another big problem with this last minute proposal was the CMS itself, Medicare and Medicaid, acknowledged that the way savings may come about from this plan is that seniors may actually lose access to drugs. Essentially, the lower reimbursements might not be attractive enough for physicians to provide the products. So if that turns out to be a correct outcome of this, I think that's going to be a non-starter for Democrats. They would definitely want to figure out another way to get the savings without harming. Awesome. Why wasn't there more done on drug prices? I mean, I get that obviously COVID sucked all the oxygen out of the room to do much lawmaking, although we'll see in a minute that they did manage to do some things. But you would think that drug prices, particularly leading up to the election, it was bipartisan. Everybody agreed that this is, you know, one of the biggest issues facing consumers. Consumers agreed that this is one of the biggest 
biggest issues facing consumers. And yet Congress just could not find any place of agreement. Even Democrats, we talked about this wasn't 2019, this is 2018, Democrats fighting amongst themselves about how to lower drug prices. <laughs> Health policy is hard, Julie. <laughs> um, I think COVID actually is gives you a good sense of why tackling drug pricing is so hard, right? We Once this pandemic happened, we immediately turned to the drug companies and said, we want vaccines, we want cures. And then people sort of freak out and get nervous. And they say, oh, no, maybe those claims that the drug industry was making that if you, you know, lower our prices, we won't be able to kind of save you when you really need to is true. I think that became a dynamic that goes to sort of the heart of the drug pricing debate is how do we you know, regulate prices and affordability and help people access their medicines while also making sure we really don't harm innovation. And nobody can really agree on how to do that. In terms of the Trump team, I think Trump himself maybe genuinely did want to go after this industry. I'm very skeptical that many of his deputies and the people actually carrying out that work was interested in it. And I think that's why you see policies like the Most Favored Nations plan, which was in the works in some shape or form for two, three years, it never really saw the light of day until there was a last minute push from the president, because I'm not really sure his deputies wanted these policies to come to fruition and actually have a chance of making real policy changes. It's hard to imagine Republicans on Capitol Hill saying, wow, let's take European countries' drug price controls and import them here. So not necessarily the most politically popular thing. All right. So while we're not really doing news this week, there is one piece of news that until last week I would have said was completely unexpected, included in the year-end coronabus. That's the combination COVID relief bill and omnibus spending bill, which has not been voted on as we are taping this, but probably will have been by the time you hear it. Um is included in that is a bill that promises, uh, if not to reduce outrageous medical bills, at least to take the patient out of the equation, at least patients who are insured and do their best to stay in their insurance networks. Not only did health providers look like they got a better deal than insurers and taxpayers, for that matter, um, it looks like a last minute change makes the compromise even more favorable to hospitals and doctors and others who have been charging sky high prices. So how is this going to work out if, I mean, you know, sort of back to drug prices, it's like, okay, we're going to take the problem away for the patient, but we really won't because we're still going to be paying outrageous amounts for certain types of medical care. I feel like this just puts a longer fuse on the whole health price problem. Well, there is a med- it, it basically is a mediation or arbitration approach. When a hospital or other provider sends this out-of-network bill to the patient, as Julie just noted, the patient doesn't have to pay. It doesn't mean that the hospital will get the entire amount either, hospital or other provider. And it doesn't mean that the insurer will pay as little as the insurer wants. That's definitely not going to happen. But there is going to be some kind of an in-between negotiated deal. They took out certain provisions that would have brought it down more. They, they can't count Medicare or Medicaid uh, prices and as they do this arbitration, as they look for what the standard price should be in a given market. But there's going to be a lot of fighting behind the scenes. Probably it'll come down somewhat, but there's two issues in healthcare costs, right? It's what the people pay. We're just talking about people in Medicare are paying less for insulin, but insulin isn't getting cheaper. Same thing here. The patient won't be paying the bill, but the national healthcare bill, the, the $3.8 trillion or whatever it is now, will still be high. It might come, it should come down somewhat. I mean, it's not a blank check that the hospitals and providers can charge everything they want as a surprise bill and get 100% of it. But it's, it's not going to be down to an in-network price either. 
Right. And I get the providers were saying, you know, we can't live on just Medicare rates. But the fight over this was between arbitration, which is seen to sort of favor the providers and some kind of benchmarking to a Medicare, Medicare plus whatever, which would have brought the prices down more. And they clearly went with the part that was more favorable to the providers, which suggests that, yeah, the patient will only have to pay the in-network rate, but the provider's going to get whatever the provider can get out of arbitration. Right. And a lot of these providers, you know, there's private equity firms behind this. It's not your neighborhood, you know, family physician. These are radiology, pathology, a lot of it is emergency care, surgeons that you didn't know were going to walk into the operating room and charge you a huge amount of money. The problem is healthcare costs. The problem is health surprise bills is one egregious reflection of our larger problem with healthcare costs. This is going to protect consumers, but it doesn't solve the problem that we, you know, we're spending not just too much, but on the wrong things. We're all going to have plenty to do in the coming years. Um, So I want to move on. It was a big year in reproductive health also. The Supreme Court, in a big surprise, struck down a Louisiana law restricting abortion, not because the conservative majority thought the law went too far, but because it was too similar to a Texas law that a slightly differently configured court struck down in 2016. The court also allowed employers and not just religious employers to decline to offer birth control as an insurance benefit as required by the Affordable Care Act if they have moral objections. Then in October, the Senate rushed through the nomination of conservative Amy Coney Barrett to replace liberal Ruth Bader Ginsburg, giving anti-abortion justices a six to three majority on the court. Even with a Democratic president and possibly a Democratic Congress, things do not look very bright for abortion rights advocates going into 2021, do they? The the open question is how far does this current court go in rolling back abortion rights, not whether they roll back abortion rights. We don't know what they will do, just like we don't know what they're going to do about Medicaid work requirements or, you know, many other things on their docket. We're pretty sure we know what they're going to do on the ACA. Unlikely to be a surprise. You could always have a surprise, but we're pretty sure they're going to upheld the ACA or the bulk of the ACA, the important parts. We're pretty sure they're going to roll back abortion rights in some way, shape or form. We don't know when. We don't know how far. There are things they can they could leave Roe on the books and still change Casey, which is the undue burden. They could allow a lot of restrictions. They could let states do an awful lot of things to restrict abortion access, abortion rights and still technically leave Roe standing. They could knock out Roe. They could go further than knocking out Roe. We don't know. I mean, would I be surprised if a year from now at status quo? I would be very surprised a year from now at status quo. But I do not know how far they will go to un- to undo a 40 years precedent. More than 40 Yeah. Now. Almost 50, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yes. It was 1973, but Casey 1992. So it's still, yes, he's been on the- Casey is a lot easier for them to tinker with because undue burden is a- you know, an eye in the beholder kind of term that was defined then, but it it has shifted. It has already, there are more restrictions than there were in 1992. But I think your point, which is that there, I mean, and this is sort of the general consensus, they seem less likely to just overturn Roe or Casey for that matter. Casey is actually the the case that, that, you know, governs now abortion litigation and more likely to just allow more and more and more restrictions so that basically the, the right remains on the books, but no one can exercise it. That seems to be the sort or of Or no one outside of certain states can exercise it. There may be. Well, and it, it may even be sometimes in certain states, which is, you know, the Trump administration is going after California because California requires employers to provide abortion coverage and insurance. So, I mean, there's there are ways that this court could probably reach states that also 
that that you know sort of blue states that have liberal abortion laws. So I imagine this is another fight that will uh, continue on. So I feel like we can't go through an entire year in review without at least mentioning COVID. So I will put my question this way, and I want each of you to answer it, please. What did the pandemic teach you about the U.S. healthcare system or the U.S. population that you didn't know before? Uh, Sarah, why don't you start? I'm not sure the pandemic taught me this, but it certainly re-emphasized it or showed it in action, which is all the kind of inequities baked into our system, all of the problems we've all spent kind of years reporting on, like the high costs, like challenges in access to care for different populations, lack of investment in public health has just created this perfect storm here where we weren't prepared as a health system to tackle this. We don't have enough nurses. We don't have enough staff sometimes on a regular basis. There are places in rural America where you never had a, a great hospital or a hospital anymore close enough to you. And it's just this pandemic is kind of the perfect storm for all of the flaws of our healthcare system, all of the root causes that we could have been addressing perhaps over the past few decades that we've ignored, 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 and all of a sudden it's ballooned to impact everybody. And perhaps maybe that will be the movement that gets us to change. I'm not so optimistic at this point because it's just been so hard for us to tackle the pandemic in general, but we'll see. I know. Um, I think one thing it taught me was that we have the ability if there is cooperation and coordination and enough money thrown at the issue to solve something as far as drugs and vaccines go for this pandemic. And I think that that has been not so much the therapeutic side, but the vaccine side so far has been a success story, you know, going from getting a vaccine in, in less than a year. We did it very, very differently than um, how pharmaceutical development happens currently. And I think people are going to be looking at that and they're going to be saying, well, why aren't we doing this for a lot of other things? And I think there are a lot of reasons we aren't and there are many nuances to why we're not, but seeing that in action was a learning lesson for me. Joanne. Well, I think Sarah and Anna mentioned most of it, but I can sum up, I think, my thoughts were, I knew that there were disparities, racial and ethnic disparities. They're worse than I knew, although there were sort of a perfect storm, including jobs and essential workers and exposure that made this, but it's worse than we knew. It's it's really bad um, that I knew that we had cut and underspended on public health, but I didn't realize that we had basically eviscerated it and ignored everything we knew. And third, as Anna just said, science is pretty cool sometimes. Science is pretty cool. I have said this before, but I think what I learned is it's very hard to fight a pandemic when one half of the country has basically been taught over the past 15 years to not trust government and not trust science. Um, it makes it really hard to do, you know, behavior modification, which is essentially all that we had at the beginning of the pandemic when nobody trusts anybody else. Okay, it is time for our extra credit segment that normally where we would each suggest a story we read the past week we think others should read too. And by the way, Joanne has a really great story out this week on Elvis and polio. Uh, but since this is our year in review, I thought we'd do something a little bit different. I'd like each of you to share two things. First, what's the best thing that happened to you this year? The news has been awfully sad, and I'd like to share at least one happy thing from each of us. And second, what did you discover that you could do this year that you never thought you could do before? I'll actually go first this week. Um, those of you who follow me on social media know that I 
got a new puppy this summer who I named Aspen because I didn't get to go to my favorite place this year because, you know, pandemic. Uh, And what did I realize I could do? Uh, Cut my own bangs. I'd always been scared I would make a giant mess of it. But at some point, it seemed better to try than to look like an actual sheepdog. Um, Anna, why don't you go next? I would like to tell the listeners that your bangs look really great. I can see them right now. Thank you. Um, just to verify. Um, so the one thing that um, happened to me this year that is very happy, my daughter turned one. Um, and I really like the whole one-year-old uh, time. time. Um, you know, she's, she's walking, she's talking, she's just a blast to be around and extremely sweet and surprising all the time. The thing that I learned I could do is care for a one-year-old in a pandemic, which is no small feat. I'm sure Sarah knows this too. Um, there's not as much that you can do with them to entertain them. And um, she hasn't really met a lot of people, um, certainly not other kids. And so we've gotten really creative and it's been fun. And I've learned that even when my parents, so grandparents tell you that it's too cold outside, that there are many warm clothes and you can go outside and it will be fine. <laughs> Sarah. So I'm going to have very similar answers to Anna. I have a one and a half year old. So I think one silver lining of the pandemic is um, we got to spend more time with her. Um, even though sometimes that was challenging with balancing work, you get to kind of watch all the milestones and development happen a little more closely. Um, so that was a lot of fun and kind of takes the ease off some of the stress um, to, to watch them sort of appreciate the world in a whole new way. And then I'm going to be a little bit stereotypical. I did experiment with yeast bread making um, during the pandemic. I knew someone would. But I didn't do sourdough. I wasn't that trendy. Um, I baked challah for the first time. I tried donuts. And I was hoping maybe over this sort of winter break, I might try um, focaccia because that's one of my favorite breads. Um, So we'll see if that works out. I have a great recipe I can share with you. (laughs) That'd be wonderful. (laughs) Joanne. Um, Well, my baby hasn't been one for a really long time. Um, He... um, had to, he it was a really challenging year for him he had to um, leave a gap year overseas on like 24 hours notice it was just really traumatic a wonderful year was you know cut short and then literally as he was packing for college literally as we were yelling at each other about sheets um, we got an email saying college was shut um, so it is the dorms were shut classes are entirely online he's had a difficult year and we had difficult times and yet I think the best part of this year was, you know, this was a kid who had a million activities. He was never home. He was, even in high school, he was always, you know, always off with something, including you know, weekends away on this activity and that. And having the chance to get to know him as a young adult and having had the chance for him to get to know his parents as from the perspective as a young adult. I mean, I think the best moment was when he hugged me one day and said, Mom, being stuck with you isn't always bad. <laughs> That's huge. That's high praise. And what did you figure out that you could do this year? Um, other than remembering to turn off the gurgling fish tank when we record. Um, <laughs> I, I, Despite having a bee allergy, I a fairly severe one, I figured out how to have um, a vegetable and herb garden. And not only was it really therapeutic to, you know, putter around out there, but I grew probably about 70% of the herbs and salad greens and vegetables that my family ate. And I'm, I harvested my last lettuce like 10 days ago. So I'm, I'm in the seed catalogs planning for next year now. 
See, we're all much more self-reliant than we realized. All right. Well, that is our show for this week and a wrap for 2020. We will take next week off and hope you can too. As always, if you enjoy the podcast, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. We'd appreciate it if you left us a review. That helps other people find us too. Special thanks, as always, to our ace producer, Francis Ying, who makes us sound okay even when we're in different places and have all kinds of technical difficulties. Also, as always, you can email us your comments or questions. We're at whatthehealth, all one word, at k ff.org or you can tweet me i'm at jay rovner joanne at joanne cannon sarah at sarah carlin anna at anna edney we will be back in your feed on january 7th in the meantime be healthy be healthy